Good morning, everybody. Welcome to September. And uh, we would like to pray as we uh, dig into God's word today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is through and by your Son, Jesus Christ, and through and by your Holy Spirit that we have redemption, uh, that we have pardon for our sins, that, that we have renovation of our very soul and our lives, Lord God. Uh, it's through Jesus also, Lord, that we, we have wisdom to live the life that you have planned for us. And, and it's through Jesus that we have strength as well for the journey that we are undertaking. We thank you for all the treasures, all the gifts that you have given us in Christ. And we pray that during this time now, as we open your word, that your son would be magnified and lifted high and praised and that his name would be made great. And Lord, that you would benefit us now as we uh, unfold your word, uh, speak to our hearts and our minds and help us, Lord, to put feet on this word and go out into the world this week, um, knowing that you've spoken to us and knowing that you've given us enablement to carry the word out. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Well, it's a recognized fact uh, by the vast majority of people, I think across the entire globe, that the music of Johann Sebastian Bach is uniquely beautiful music, uniquely special music within the whole history of music, in fact. J.S. Bach lived um, about, a, about 300 years ago now, uh, and still today, his music is treasured, it is performed regularly across the world, it is studied, uh, valued as some of the greatest music that's ever been written. If you have the opportunity to listen to J.S. Bach's uh, Brandenburg Concertos, for example, he's, he wrote many things, but if you listen to, to the Brandenburg Concertos, you, you are struck almost immediately by the sheer beauty of the music and the uh, pathos of it. I think arguably J.S. Bach is the greatest classical composer who ever lived. His, his music is still praised for its rare quality, and so it should be. Well, as human beings, it is our regular habit, in fact, to praise things that have about them a truly enjoyable quality or a beauty or a nobility, or, or a, a rare sort of value. So things like the music of J.S. Bach, or a great poem, or uh, a fine, exquisite meal, or a, uh, a fantastic sunset, if you've been out and, and seen this, the great orange glow of a beautiful sunset. These things tend to bring out a wow in us. Uh, we often vocalize our pleasure in these things and, and we praise out loud as we are experiencing them. Well, here's my question this morning. What if there was something in our reality that was absolute in beauty, perfectly glorious and perfectly noble and supremely lovely, 
brimming with glory, and supremely valuable. What if there was something before us that made even the music of J.S. Bach sound average, sound mediocre by comparison? Would that perfectly glorious thing evoke in us the highest praise? Would it deserve our highest praise? Well, of course it would, wouldn't it? When in the presence of such a totally perfect thing, it would be, I think, it would be fully appropriate for us to just simply marvel in awe with our whole being and become lost in praise. Well, friends, of course, God is the person, I've been mentioning things up to this point, but God is the person that we have just described. God is the only one who is perfectly glorious. God is the one with whom we have to do in this life and the next life. God is before us, even right now, and God is altogether perfect in every single way, and God is thoroughly beautiful, and he is supremely, supremely valuable above anything and everything else, and God is our only hope, our only hope in life and in death. This preacher and you and this pulpit and your computer or your phone or whatever you're watching on right now and the music of J.S. Bach and everything else that is in existence owes its existence to him. His excellency and his glory and his perfection is simply incomparable. It's not to be compared with anyone or anything else. And here's the thing. God knows this about himself. God knows that he is supremely valuable and incomparably great and that he is utterly, utterly indispensable to the very life of every one of his creatures, including us. God knows this. God knows that nothing, nothing can hold a candle to him and he knows that nothing and no one can compare with him. In fact, he asks the rhetorical question in his word in Isaiah 40, verse 25. He asks, to whom then will you compare me? And of course, the expected answer there is, we can't. We can't compare you to anyone, Lord, because no one comes close to comparing with you. God is super self-aware of his incomparable beauty, his incomparable glory, his greatness, his power, his love. And since God knows this about himself, I want you to listen. Since God knows this about himself, it is very, very right for him to exalt the value of his glory. 
it is fully appropriate for the supremely valuable being in the universe to ensure that his reputation is not in any way threatened or damaged. God will maintain his fame and his reputation as the all-supreme, perfectly glorious one. And this fact that he will maintain his reputation is very good news for you and I. I want to take us to a text of scripture today where we see God valuing his own name, valuing his own glory, valuing his own reputation, and making sure here, and he's doing this all by himself, he's making sure that his reputation is upheld and maintained. And the text in question this morning is Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 23. If you want to open your Bible there, it would be a good idea to have it open. Now, as we, what we're doing here is we're parachuting in uh, to this Old Testament text. I think it's going to help us just for a moment if we refresh ourselves concerning some of the context here. So Israel, at this point in their history, they've just been exiled from their land. The final part of that exile happened in 586 BC. So at this point, Babylon is in control of Israel's land. And the people of Israel now, they've been shuttled over to Babylon. And now in our text, Ezekiel the prophet receives a word from the Lord. Let's read the text. Verse 16 the word of Yahweh comes to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, that's Ezekiel, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, fresh history, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. God says, Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Of course, this is a very graphic image that God uses here as he describes the sinful ways of Israel in the land that were happening just prior to the exile. Israel's sin had been of a particularly unsavory and offensive nature. Verse 18, what did God do? when he saw his people acting so sinfully. Listen to what God says. He says, I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land and for the idols which, with which they had defiled it. Now notice in this 18th verse that God indicts Israel here for two things, shedding blood in the land and idolatry. The first of these two, shedding blood in the land, this has to do with human-to-human -human violence, violence that had been happening on the horizontal level between human-to-human. -human. And the second one here, idolatry, 
has to do with human sin against God in heaven. So idolatry is about rebellion on the vertical level between human beings and God. As Chris Wright points out in his commentary on Ezekiel, the two sins that are mentioned here in this verse are offenses that really encompass the entirety of the Ten Commandments. Offense on the human-to-human -human level and offense on the human-to-divine level. Let's go forward to verse 19. God says, I scattered them, these people. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. What we have in verse 19 is God describing the actual exile moment itself here. And do notice, do notice how God himself, don't miss this, God himself takes credit for doing it here. It was God who sent Israel packing, sent them out of their land in his judgment on their sin. Now, as we come to verse 20, as we're going forward in the text, remember just for a minute that theme that we opened with this morning. God, as the supremely valuable one in all the universe, God who is concerned to exalt his glory and maintain his reputation. We said that God is fully aware at all times, he's fully aware of his own supreme value for the world that he created. God says here, but when my people Israel, when they came to the nations, listen to what he says, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. Now that word there, profaned, this has to do with insulting God's name, defaming his name, or damaging the name of God, or bringing into disrepute the name of God. And God's name, God's name is God's very reputation. When you and I say, oh, this person has a good name around here, what we mean is that the person has a good reputation. Or if we say, that lady, she really made a name for herself, what we mean is that she carved out a reputation, a certain esteem among people. So name, here in verse 20, is a stand-in, we could say, for reputation. The idea in this verse then is that the people of Israel, even as they were exiled into lands not their own, they were profaning, bringing into disrepute God's reputation. They were defaming God. And how were they doing this? Well, let's keep reading the text. God says here, but when my people came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that, notice the red part on the screen, in that people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, 
and yet they had to go out of his land. Now listen, we'll come back to the verse in just a minute, but, but first we have to consider something. In the ancient Near East, when you lived in a given nation, you had your national gods, your national deities. Your, your gods were different in your nation. They were different than the gods in the neighboring nations for the most part. And your national gods went with you into battle as you went out to wage war on other nations and peoples. Your, your gods went with you. And when you enjoyed a military victory, your god or your gods were then understood in the victory to be superior to the god or the gods of the nation that you just defeated. Well, at the time of Israel's exile, Babylon, with their national god Marduk, had come in invading Israel, and Babylon had been successful in that campaign. In the minds of the Babylonians, this meant that their god Marduk had been superior to Israel's god Yahweh. When Babylon and Marduk won the battle over Israel when they took control of Jerusalem, the conclusion was then that Israel and Yahweh with Israel had been weaker than Marduk and Babylon. Marduk had proved himself mightier than Yahweh, or so went the thought. So picture with me, picture the defeated Israelites now they're traveling in large groups out of their land. They are conquered. They are utterly discouraged. And when they get to the border of Babylon, the Babylonians look at them coming in and they say, as they look at these people, they say, look at these poor wretches. I guess their so-called God, Yahweh, lacked the ability to help them in battle, or maybe he was unwilling to help them or something. Praise Marduk. He is definitely stronger than Israel's God, Yahweh. Well, now we're in a position to listen to verse 20 again. I think it might have more meaning for us now. Again, God says, When my people Israel came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people, the people of Babylon, said of them, they said of these defeated Israelites, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. So the people of Babylon concluded, as they witnessed droves of Israelites exiled from their land, they concluded, as these people were pouring into Babylon, that Yahweh must not be much of a God if this is how his people end up exiled out of their land. You see what's happening here? Yahweh's fame, Yahweh's name, the reputation of the supremely valuable being in the entire universe, his reputation was taking a hit 
in the nations because his rebellious, sinful people had been defeated and driven out of their land. And because Yahweh is the very best thing for the nations, this could not happen. Now, concerning how important it was for God to maintain his reputation amongst the nations, it might help us here if we recall that the entire reason, listen, the entire reason that God brought his people, it, his people Israel into being in the first place was to use them to do what? To bless the nations of the world. God designed Israel from the first to be the vehicle through which his glory and his greatness and his blessing and his supreme value would be made known throughout the earth. The reason Israel was to keep the statutes and the commandments of God, according to Deuteronomy 4, was that in the sight of the peoples, it says in the text, or in the sight of the nations of the earth, Israel's wisdom and understanding would shine forth as they kept the statutes and commandments of God, the result of which would be that the nations would then inquire about Israel's God, Yahweh, and then hopefully come to trust in Yahweh. So Israel was designed from the first to be a walking, talking display case, if we want to put it that way, a display case for Yahweh amongst the nations a display case of Yahweh's character, of his faithfulness, of his power, of his worth, and of his goodness. But now what had happened here, Ezekiel 36, what had happened? Israel, by her wickedness, by her obstinate rebellion and violence, they had been exiled, and in the process... Yahweh's character was being called into question now by the nations. As Peter Craigie once put this matter so well, I think, he said, quote, the, the whole point of Israel's election had failed. The people who had been called to form a special nation in the world of human nations had failed. Israel, which should have demonstrated to all mankind the holiness of the one true God, had revealed rather to the blurred sight of other nations, they had revealed rather only the picture of an inadequate national deity. Close quote. The bottom line was that Israel's sin with its subsequent exile and then the conclusions of the nations concerning that exile, conclusions about Israel's supposedly impotent God, all of this had put God's whole purpose for his world in jeopardy. His reputation was in danger of being badly tarnished. His mission to the nations seemed to be in jeopardy now. So what would God do? Well, let's venture forward in our text. Verse 21 now, God says, says God speaking. It's remarkable. He says, but I had concern for, or we could translate, I had pity for 
my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. God, the supremely valuable one in the entire universe, says here that he felt pity for his own great reputation that Israel now had dirtied by their conduct. Verse 22, still God talking, Therefore say to the house of Israel, my prophet Ezekiel, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, now listen, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Now here we have something quite breathtaking, quite interesting, I think. Israel is suffering in this moment. They are defeated. Family members are missing or dead. They have been forced into life in a foreign country with virtually none of their belongings with them. They're suffering. And God says to them, I'm about to act, but let's get something straight. It won't be for your sake that I act. Instead, God declares, My action will be for my own sake, and Israel, you need to understand that. The verse says, let's read it, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Yes, for the sake of my own reputation, God says, for the sake of my fame in this world, which you, Israel, have profaned, among the nations to which you came. Friends, the one who is the supreme treasure of the universe, the one who is the breathtaking beauty of the entire universe, the one who is all-glorious, the one on whom every living creature and every inanimate object depends, the one who is the only hope of a dying, sin-sick world, and haven't we seen a lot of that lately, this God will ensure that his reputation and his fame is upheld, and he will do it with his people's help or without his people's help, and he will do it for the sake of his world. Verse 23 And I will vindicate what? Again, does God say here, I will vindicate you, my defeated, exiled people. I'll I'll soon have you up on your feet again. No, God doesn't say that here. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. There it is again. Which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. God's primary concern, we need to see his primary concern here, is the vindication, the restoration of his spotless reputation amongst the nations of the earth. I love how Chris Wright puts this. He says, listen, 
quote, God here has a wider passion than his saving love for Israel, and that is the protection of his own name among the nations and the vision of bringing them all ultimately to know and honor him, Yahweh, as God. Close quote. Again, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And then notice the very last sentence of our passage in verse 23. It's as far as we'll go today. And the nations, listen, listen to the language here. The nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now focus your eyes with me on that first phrase in the sentence, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh. This burning desire in God that all nations would know him, that all nations would value him as the highest treasure in the universe because that's what he is. This desire in God existed from the very beginning and it has never changed. How many times, way back in the book of Exodus, did God express his desire that the nations of the earth would know that he is Yahweh and you will know that I am the Lord, Pharaoh, and you will know, Israel, that I am the Lord, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. God does that tons of times in Exodus and tons of times through this book of Ezekiel as well. Why such a desire in God to have his fame spread and his glorious reputation spread around the world? Why? Because again, and we need to understand this, God knows perfectly well that he is the absolute, supremely best thing for the world. There's nothing better for the world than Almighty God. God knows that it's only at his right hand and no one else's right hand that there are pleasures forevermore for those whom he brings into his family. God knows that he alone and no one else is the creator of all things and that all things reach their goal in him and their purpose in him and their aim in him. God knows this. Well, God says in this 23rd verse, I want you to see this as well, and then we're going to wrap this up. But he says that he was planning here to vindicate his holiness and that he would do that how? He would do that through Israel before the watching eyes of the nations. Now, if we were to keep reading Ezekiel after this verse, what we would see is that the way, the way that God would vindicate his holiness, the way that he would uh, restore his great reputation is by restoring wayward Israel. 
restoring them physically to their land and restoring them spiritually by cleansing them and by forgiving them of their sin. And the nations, the nations would look upon the restored Israel and Israel returned to their land and Israel forgiven of their sin. The nations would look on a restored Israel and what the nations would see in and through that restored nation is a merciful, mighty, gracious and worthy God who had accomplished the restoration. God would be magnified in this and thereby his concern to uphold the greatness of his reputation would be satisfied. Well, friends, in this passage that we've traveled through this morning, we have an Israel who failed in their mission failed in their mission to honor and to magnify the Lord God and to spread his fame. Israel failed to uphold the great reputation of their God amongst the nations. We have that in this passage. And we also have in the same passage a God, a God who is adamant, adamant that his almighty reputation would be rejuvenated amongst the nations with or without Israel. If only Israel could rewind the tape in their history and do things differently. Well, in effect, Jesus Christ is the rewind in Israel's history. He is the one who comes along and who does what Israel failed to do. Like Israel, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Israel had been tempted in the wilderness, so was Jesus. But the difference is that Jesus succeeds in overcoming temptation where Israel had failed. Jesus shows himself very clearly to be the new Israel. He descends from Abraham like Israel had. But unlike Old Testament Israel before him, who had dragged God's name through the dirt, the passionate, unflinching concern of Jesus is that God's name would be hallowed and glorified amongst the nations. Jesus prays in John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. See the concern of Jesus there? And Jesus prays in Matthew 6, 9, we know this verse well, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your reputation be kept holy. Near the end of his earthly life, as Jesus was reporting to his father uh, concerning the outcome of his earthly mission, he said in that prayer, Father, I have manifested your name, your name, your reputation, your greatness. I have manifested it to the people whom you gave me out of the world. John 17, 6. 
He said to his father there, Father, while I was with these disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, John 17, 11. Jesus, you see, was white hot, white hot in his zeal that his father's supreme reputation would be trumpeted to the world, glorified in the world, magnified in the world, and shouted to the world. Jesus, by his obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, Jesus, by his obedience, magnified God's name to the nations. He lifted the name of God high, so high, in fact, to the point that the Father, we know from Philippians 2, did what? The Father highly exalted Jesus, bestowing on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus now, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. Have you noticed as you read your New Testament that the name Jesus is found in both the opening verse of the New Testament and in the closing verse of the New Testament? And have you noticed how everything in between those two bookend verses of the New Testament, everything in between is there to do what? To glorify and to magnify the name of Jesus. The great Victorian era preacher, Charles Spurgeon, if, if you've known me for a while, you know I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon reminds us that it's through Jesus' name that we have received remission of sins. It's in his name that we are justified. It's in his name that we are sanctified. It's in his name that we shall be glorified, even as in his name we were chosen from before the foundation of the world. May the name of Jesus be made great right now in this fractured, reeling world that we inhabit. May his reputation spread like wildfire among the nations in a fresh way. And so, friends, we come finally to the application of all of this uh, for you and, and me. What, what do we do with this word of, of God that we've looked at this morning? What do we do this afternoon with this and tomorrow and throughout the week? Well, it's very simple. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, understand right now, understand that his plan has never changed. It's never changed. We saw that God's plan in Ezekiel chapter 36 was to ensure that his reputation would be praised, would be made known to the nations. He is the greatest treasure in the nations. I hope he is the greatest treasure that you have in your life and in your heart right now. Jesus comes to us, comes to his church in Acts 1 verse 8, and he calls us what? His witnesses. The Israel of Ezekiel 36, they had failed in their role, failed terribly to be witnesses to God. But now you and I, in union with Jesus Christ, we are called to be witnesses who are about the business of promoting 
the sterling reputation of God, the great name of God. And we are to do that to the nations. And so my question to you is, will you do that? Will you make an attempt to do that prayerfully in your corner of the world this very week? Will you pray even now that God will grant you creative opportunities to be a witness to his greatness this week to a world that is starving for God? Peter Craigie said this, Our lives are the avenues through which God's holiness and will are made known to the world. One more time. Our lives, said Craigie, are the avenue, avenues through which God's holiness and will are made known to the world. Friends in Christ, God forbid that this week we would drag his name through the gutter with words or with conduct that would bring disrepute to him. I challenge you to pray even now to ask God that he would implant in you implant in you a refreshed longing, a refreshed desire that in every crack and crevice of your life, his reputation and his name would be made great. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I pray, Lord, for each and every person listening and watching today as we have sat under the authority of this part of your word, that, Lord God, you would do a work in our hearts, a work in our minds. It is so easy for us to get caught up in selfish thinking, selfish desires, selfish, selfish plans. But I pray, Lord, that we would look outward from, from ourselves and see the lostness, the brokenness, the hurt, in our world and go out as ambassadors boldly full of the spirit making your name great telling people about jesus sharing the gospel lifting and magnifying you lord god i pray this in jesus name and ask for your help for each and every one of us this week